And Natasha! Not just a spy, not just toppling regimes, destroying empires from within, but an avenger. Dave, Conrad, come see it. Drink vodka. Let me tell you about no movie, Bleak Widow. Yeah, Jonah, I saw it. It was, uh, it was cool. Was good movie, nah? I really enjoyed it. Drink, drink, Dave, drink to Scarlett Johansson. Finally getting super big team shot. God, I hate vodka. Ah, but you love good spy movie, eh? Buddy, I gotta ask, why do you sound like a Bond villain? I am feeling this episode needs for female super spy we deserve. Natasha Romanoff, better than female Bond, she Black Widow. Well, you can drop the bit, but not the booze, Jonah, because I agree. Black Widow is way more satisfying than a female Bond would ever be. And this is Galaxy Brains. Today, we are going to that big widow training camp in the sky with Amanda Olke of the International Spy Museum. mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome to Galaxy Brains, the podcast where movies, TV, and overthinking collide. I'm Dave Schilling. And I'm Dave's mind-controlled super pig, Jonah Ray. And each week on the show, we start with the logical brain, advance to the critical brain, question everything with the interrogation brain, and of course, arrive to the blessed state of the galaxy brain. Today, our guest is Amanda Olke, the director of adult education at the International Spy Museum, and we are talking about Black Widow. Before we begin our mission to melt our minds with high-level film theory, let's review our objectives in a little segment we call Logic Brain. All right, folks, this is your requisite spoiler warning. We are going to be breaking down all the twists and turns and character reveals in Black Widow. So if you haven't seen the movie yet, throw your phone in the ocean and watch it slowly sink to the bottom before being eaten by some poor, defenseless sea creature. Dave! Sorry, I'm just testing out my mind control serum on our listeners. Oh, okay. If this worked, you will not be hearing these words at all because your phone is at the bottom of the ocean. If my plan didn't work and you still haven't seen the movie, then go give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. If you gave our listeners a mind control serum, why wouldn't your first instinct be to tell them to go review Galaxy Brains on Apple Podcasts instead of having to throw their cell phone away, Dave? <sighs> um, honestly, I did not think of that. Hey, next time you try to take over the world, then remember it, okay? Put it in my eye, Cal. 
Anyway, Black Widow is essentially the prequel to Avengers Infinity War you didn't know you wanted. Natasha Romanoff is on the run from Thaddeus Ross after the events of Captain America Civil War, but her little vacation from saving the world is interrupted when she's dragged back into the murky spy world of the Widows, a group of brainwashed female assassins with a conspicuous inability to have children. Is it your time of the month? I don't get my period, dipshit. I don't have a uterus. She also reunites with her surrogate family, fake sister Yelena Belova, played by Florence Pugh, Melina Vostokov, played by Rachel Weisz, and the Red Guardian himself, Alexei Shostakov, played by a very memorable David Harbour. Natasha vows to destroy the Widow program once and for all, since, as you know, she has an open week on her schedule. Boy, is she lucky Thanos didn't decide to invade a month earlier. Let's get into more random nitpicking like that in this week's Critical Brain. Jonah, once again, we're talking about a movie that's 99% about free will. What is going on here? Why are people so concerned with the fact that we have no choice in our lives and are just on a track to death? Uh, it's interesting. I think maybe it's just one of those kind of psychological thinkings that's starting to get more in vogue and then being kind of parlayed into not by any conscious effort. Of course, it's not conscious because that's the whole idea. It's just happening. I think it's just the zeitgeist right now. Yeah, I think people are starting to realize that they are in some ways very helpless to change the course of human existence. And that is coming out in, in our blockbusters. These characters, these spy people, don't really have a choice, and they are all forced to follow Drakov, the villain played by Ray Winstone, who is great in this movie as he is anytime he just gets to growl at people. I own this world. He's also really good at the very close-up talk where he's so close in people's faces when he's talking to him, like you feel weird for the other person, even like just even the actor. Yeah, it's like, you got to smell that guy's breath all day long. He is just right up in your grizzle. Yeah, but it's very good. He's like just a perfect heavy when it comes to playing a villain. Yeah, it's that physical closeness that is intimidating. He knows that you can't do anything to stop him. You're not really going to physically attack him. And that is a, a plot point at the end of this movie is that <laughs> there's some sort of dickety-doo hoo-ha about pheromones. Smelling my pheromones prevents you from committing violence against me. But that uh, does allow us to have this great moment where she breaks her own nose and then kicks his ass. I thought that was an incredibly cool moment. I don't know if it's a scientifically feasible way to solve this problem, but I believed it. I let it go and I enjoyed the movie anyway. You know, it's it's super fun. And it, the science doesn't have to be hard sci-fi is, is great when it's there. But like, I'm fine with a little bit of jumps here and there. I'm fine with that. And it did like just her getting beat up and being like cocky about it was also super fun. And even though it's like she is getting beat up by somebody else, it did just her attitude and it did remind me of Ed Norton beating himself up in Fight Club uh, <laughs> in the office. There was just that kind of like attitude about it, like where, oh, there's a bigger thing going on. You kind of felt that the whole time. Absolutely. It reminded me of toward the end of Casino Royale, the Daniel Craig version, where Mads Mikkelsen is hitting him with the carpet beater that kind of crushes his nutsack. And he's sort of like laughing about getting beat up. Or Harrison Ford in any movie where he just kind of has these ragdoll physics about how he gets beat up. There's just an art to getting your ass kicked in a movie. And I think Scarlett Johansson figured out how to paint with every color of the rainbow when she got her ass kicked by Ray Winstone. 
And that's something I think we lost a lot in a lot of kind of action movies. And I think that kind of started with the whole Schwarzenegger, Stallone kind of unspoken battle, you know, and then of course the crescendo of it is probably Hobbs and Shaw where neither The Rock or, you know, Shaw. (laughs) Jason Statham. Jason Statham. (laughs) Like neither of them could be beat up more than the other. You know, it's part of the rules of these modern action stars. Yeah, they can't actually take any damage and they can't be phased by the violence. And I think that's unfortunate because one of the things that connects you emotionally to the hero in these movies is seeing them suffer physically or emotionally. One of my favorite action movies of all time is Die Hard. And Die Hard puts John McClane through the ringer, my friend. It is a movie where he just gets slapped around. He's walking on broken glass with bare feet, for God's sakes. And you love John McClane for that because at the end, he succeeds. You empathize with his plight. You feel for him and you want him to rescue his wife. Here's the thing about like, she gets beat up and you want her to win. But ultimately, Dave, we know that she's going to die in Endgame. Yeah, it is kind of weird to watch this movie knowing how it all ends. And it's not necessarily... It's not a problem for me. Going to be honest, I forgot. <laughs> you forgot. I forgot. <laughs> I couldn't help but remember. So much of our lives was dedicated to those two movies, to that Avengers, Thanos, Infinity War cycle. But it does, it is an odd experience knowing where this is going. And that death, that, that sense of fatality and finality doesn't really affect the movie at all. It's not like she's kind of thinking about her own mortality or that that's the theme of the film. She's, she she triumphs at the end, and then they cut to her tombstone. It's like, oh, yeah, by the way, don't forget, she did die in another movie. Uh, I was not thrown by any of that. I wasn't bothered by it. I wasn't bothered by what is currently circulating on the internet, a clip of the end of the movie where Yelena sticks a giant stick in a thing, and then it blows up. I wasn't bothered by that. I know people are like, it looks bad. It looks shitty. It looks like she's in front of a green screen. Guess what, guys? She is. She was. She didn't actually put a stick inside of a giant flying spaceship to blow it up, okay? It's all fake. It's fine. There are a lot of people out there who say, ah, I could have done that better. Why didn't they spend more money on it? Maybe they couldn't. It's not like these movies have unlimited budgets. Yeah, I mean, look at the train fight in Black Panther. It's so rubbery. Yeah. But it's still, it's a fun idea. And if that's the best they could do with their resources, okay. You know, I still got it. It looked a bit silly. But that's because it's fake. It's not real. <laughs> yeah, this is, a, this is a movie about brainwashed female assassins. And one of them fought a giant purple man to save the world. I, I don't really know why we're getting our panties in a bunch here about this. These are fake movies about fake things that don't actually ever happen. Couldn't happen. It's fine. It didn't take me out of the film. It was just a thing that happened in a movie. And the things that people love about the Fast and the Furious movies, which we talked about two weeks ago. Those things are considered a charming aspect of these movies. But if it's a Marvel movie, well, we got to tear it down. We got to say why it sucks. And boy, oh boy, isn't that lame that this looks kind of fake. Both of us have worked on movies before. We know that it's kind of hard. It's super hard. And if you don't have, you know, the time, the mind, you know, it's just because what you're seeing can't ever happen. So what do you know if it looks real or fake? What do you fucking know? Yeah, the alien looked fake. Guess what? We don't know. Maybe like aliens will come 
one day and the, well, everyone will be like, it looks like bad CGI. We might say that. The, the things that people complain about when the world has plenty of real things to complain about. I like stop being so entitled to movies that are perfect looking. I think Kate Shortland did a great job with this movie. She's a director of the film and hadn't really directed a studio movie before this. I think she did a great job. And she said she was inspired, oddly enough, by a movie that has no real action scenes in it. No country for old men. I mean, there's a suitcase they got to try and not give someone else. There's that aspect of it. Some of the haircuts weren't so great. Kind of like that movie. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I don't know if I, I see them because the idea of No Country for Old Men is that it is kind of an action movie, but it's done super slow. Yeah, the tension of that movie, the, the pacing of it is what draws you in versus the frenetic pace of a Marvel movie where there's just these insane kind of quickly edited, heavily scored moments where the movie is telling you what to feel. No Country for Old Men is really specifically <laughs> a movie designed to not tell you how to feel. And that is the creeping dread of Shigur as this monster. So is Taskmaster the Anton Shigur, the hired muscle? Significantly fewer monologues, Jonah. <laughs> She doesn't have a single line in the movie. But where Anton Shigur uh, flips a coin, Taskmaster flips cars. Anyway, I think more than No Country for Old Men, this movie was inspired by the television series The Americans that was on FX. It's it's certainly the that first scene with the family. There is that sort of feeling of nostalgia and the, the nuclear family that is not real. I liked that stuff. But it did end up feeling very strange when you meet the real people after the fact. I wouldn't say it's like a rug pulling moment where it's like, wait a minute, how come those people don't actually love each other? It's sort of a fun moment when you realize that David Harbour's character, Red Guardian, is a complete doofus and not the great dad that he comes off as in the opening scene. Incredible performance for David Harbour. I'm really happy that he got, you know, some kind of because he, he's a big guy and for him to kind of have this star turn in a huge movie doing an amazing nuanced character that has all these very different styles of acting in it. It can't help but root for the guy in this. He did an amazing job of the first version of the dad, the, the sweet dad, the action dad trying to save his family. And then just the guy who was just kind of about vanity. And then this downtrodden, you know, prisoner that's just so stupid. You're just as beautiful and as supple as the day they stitched our marriage. I just got out of prison. I, uh, I have a lot of energy. Oh. So I got to ask you, I got to create a little new segment. I don't know if this is, if you mind me just kind of on the fly creating a segment here. I'm ready. I'm ready. Yeah. What is it? We talk about dads all the time on this show. Sure. We sure do. But I think it's time that we institutionalize this conversation and we give it its own little segment of the show called Galaxy Dads. I am your father. I'm in. I am fucking in. Here we go. We got two father figures to talk about. One, David Harbour as a Red Guardian. He's in prison for years, hasn't talked to his fake daughters in a long time, isn't technically their father at all. What do you think about him as a dad? Rate him on a scale of one to ten. We should come up with what each number we have to figure out a dad. Five is Homer Simpson or something like that. Yeah, one is Al Bundy. Yeah, yes. And ten is Coach Taylor from Friday Night Lights. Okay, all right. I'm going to say 
David Harbour is a six. I'm going to give him a little bit more than half because he ego can be hard. And when you're propped up as a icon and then it's kind of just taken away from you and he has his own abandonment stuff with his boss who he looks up to and was his best friend and kind of got, got abandoned by him. Yeah. I'm going to give him a six because he did in the end really want to try. It was just his own shit that got in the way. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I think I'm there with you too. I'm going to give him a seven though. I got a point to that specific scene where he tries to make Natasha feel better. He really does. Or is it Yelena? Lawrence Pugh and starts to sing the song. He remembers the song she liked when they were driving in the car. And they were singing <laughs> by Miss America. Drove my Chevy to the levee, but the levee was done. Right, yeah. So he really made an effort as a dad to like cheer her up. Yelena and he could have just kind of let it go but he he believed in the part that he was playing and he understood the bare minimum that a dad needs to do to be a good parent and so he wants to try because he knows that it can mean a lot to somebody and so you know what I'm gonna bump mine up to seven as well oh there you go okay I convinced you all right okay so the second dad Drakov our man Drakov whose daughter ends up becoming an assassin because he puts a chip in her brain and he is a surrogate father figure for all of the brainwashed widows around the world. What do we say from Al Bundy to Coach Taylor from Friday Night Lights? These girls were trash. They are thrown out into the street. I recycle the trash. This guy sucks. He's a bad dude. He wishes he was Al Bundy. Yeah. <laughs> At least Al Bundy didn't put chips in his kids' brains and made them fight. So good for you, Al Bundy. Yeah, Drakov, a sub-Al Bundy shithead. So that, folks, is Galaxy Dads. I'm sure have this segment come back again next week when we talk about Space Jam starring America's ultimate father, LeBron James. Not Cleveland's. Oh, boy. No, they still love him. All right. Back to Black Widow. Back to Black Widow. Speaking of Taskmaster, this character has become incredibly controversial on the internet surprisingly so in my opinion what the fuck is wrong with you people first of all let me give you the backstory okay if you don't know what i'm talking about the comics version of taskmaster is a man named tony masters who's a mercenary who can mimic the fighting techniques of other superpowered marvel characters so he became a gun for hire it's a fine character that a lot of marvel super fans really love but of course in this movie that character is totally different because it is drakov's daughter she explodes in a flashback because Natasha is trying to kill Drakov. But now she is the character called Taskmaster, who has a chip that allows her to mimic the moves of these characters. So essentially, besides the backstory and the gender of the character, it's the same character. that She has the same abilities that the Taskmaster character has in the comic books. So why does this bother Marvel fans? when the changes to characters like Red Guardian. That's not the same Red Guardian from the comic books. Uh, Justin Hammer in Iron Man 2, he's Sam Rockwell instead of an old man. 
Why does this bother people so much? Well, to me, it was just too reminiscent uh, the original appearance of Deadpool in Wolverine Origins, which was a terrible version of it that Ryan Reynolds also played. It's like Deadpool famously quippy, and then they made him mute. It's like having this beloved character. I doubt it's even about the gender switch. I think it's just about how they made made it just like an automaton, essentially. That's a good point. There's really no character development for this taskmaster in the movie. Maybe we'll see some character development going forward. They did cast a known actor, Olga Kirilenko. They don't cast known actors in these tiny roles unless they have an idea to use them again. And if you don't know who Olga Kirilenko is, she was the female lead in Daniel Craig, James Bond movie, Quantum of Solace. There is a major James Bond connection to this movie. Number one, there is a scene where Natasha is in her kind of hideaway watching Moonraker, my favorite James Bond movie of all time. But there's also more James Bond connections. Uh, You've also got David Harbour, who was in Quantum of Solace playing a CIA agent, a weaselly little shithead. And get this, Rachel Weisz is married to Daniel Craig. Oh, interesting. Wow, look at that. It's almost like it it happened on purpose. So, I gotta ask you, is this the closest we'll ever get to a female James Bond movie? Ooh. I I don't know about a female James Bond. I just gotta say it. I'm just gonna be honest. What? It seems like we might as well be having a black Superman in here. Yeah, Dave, remember our Justice League episode? You said exactly that. Damn you and your encyclopedic knowledge of our back catalog. Dave, a female James Bond would be totally cool, but I almost don't know if we need one. After all, the Bond character is defined by a very 20th century idea of masculinity. You know, the fast cars, the unchecked alcoholism, the smoking, the unwanted sexual advances, the colonialism, the xenophobia. Okay, okay. Slow your roll here, big guy. I get it. You don't like James Bond. I sure don't. I fucking hate him. I find them boring and unnecessary. It's jock stuff that people who teased me in high school were into. And I've been made fun of for making that stance before. And you know what? I'm still fucking right. Here's the thing. I don't like nice fucking fancy watches, Mr. Gucci loafers. I got those Gucci loafers on sale. I did a payment plan. Yes, I used my son's college fund, but he's good for it. Okay, my point is that James Bond is a story about a very particular kind of guy at a very particular moment in cultural history. Female spy stories don't have to be about that stuff. They can be about things that matter to women today. Black Widow does that. Okay, like we said, this is a story about free will. It's about control over a woman's body. It's not explicitly about the reproductive choice, but it definitely does dance around those ideas more often than not. The idea of family and how we defined what a family is, is super important to Natasha and Yelena. You're not saying family issues only matter to women, are you? No, of course not. But I'm saying that these are questions we all grapple with, and they are being examined from a female perspective. And that's valuable. Instead of retrofitting old stories to satisfy modern audiences, why not tell new stories with a modern eye? Black Widow is based on a comic book from the 1960s. 
All right, Mr. Gucci loafers with your Wikipedia and your reading, your books and stuff and your watches and your long billowy shirts and your, and your beautiful eyes. Say it, say it, say it, say it. My beautiful eyes, say it. This flash fashion that you just buy these clothes. You won't even like them in a year because trends move on. Say it about my eyes. You don't have to buy shit because you've got great eyes. I've been telling you that since the day we met that night in Cabo. But like, listen, Dave, we don't need to sell this here. When we come back, we're going to be joined by the International Spy Museum's Amanda Olsen who will absolutely side with me on this crucial topic. Uh, but, you know, here's the thing. How about I just disappear? Smoke spy style. Like a spy. Like, a, like the Foot Clan from Ninja Turtles. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome back to Galaxy Brains. We've sharpened our minds into deadly weapons. Shiny blades with really cool etchings on them like in Lord of the Rings. But now we have to put those tools to the test. Is Black Widow really the female James Bond? To crack the code, we've enlisted Amanda Olkey, Director of Adult Education at the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C., the home of the largest collection of espionage artifacts in the world. Amanda, if that is your real name, thank you for joining me today. Well, Dave, thank you for having me if this is really me. <laughs> I don't know. You're, a, you're an espionage expert. You could be fooling me. You could take a mask off like in Mission Impossible. I have no idea what's about to happen here. How about those masks in Black Widow, too? I know, right? We, we could talk spoilers here that there was a mask reveal in this movie, it did feel like Black Widow was kind of an amalgamation of all the great spy tropes, even to the point where there's a scene from Moonraker that Natasha is watching in the film when she has her last moment of peace before the action starts. Can we talk about that for a minute, about Moonraker for a second? I would love to. It's my favorite James Bond movie. Well, I got a little intel on that, and I want to say to you that you and I clearly share a love for Hugo Drax. What a crazy, the wackiest of the Roger Moore movies. And I was so intrigued that that was the one that they had Natasha watching. It's the silliest, and it's the one where they go to space, and you think about the Marvel movies, and they're all these films that are about cosmic problems. James Bond is grounded. It's a thing that takes place in the real world. You know, even if there's an invisible car in a James Bond movie, it's still about North Korean political intrigue. And so I think by putting Moonraker 
this movie that is the most ridiculous James Bond movie with technology that could never exist, laser fights in space. It's kind of poking fun at the fact that this is a spy movie taking place in a world where aliens exist (laughs) and a giant purple man can make a third of the world disappear with the snap of his fingers. And, you know, the very interesting location of the Red Room does make you think a little bit of Hugo Drax's Moon Lair vibe. A little bit. Yeah, that's a really good point. Yeah. I mean, the kind of idea of controlling physical specimens, the control of the, of the physical specimen in Moonraker is that they're sending up these beautiful people to procreate on the moon. And that will be like this kind of paradise that's ruled by Hugo Drax. Here, the villain of this film is using beautiful physical specimens to control Earth. But I want to ask you, I want to ask you about gender in this film and gender in the spy genre in general. It's very rare that we get a cinematic portrayal of a female spy. And there's been a lot of talk on the internet about how maybe we should have a female James Bond. But hopefully, maybe, this movie will will kind of scratch that itch that people have for a female James Bond. Do you think that that's the case? Well, I mean, it's never going to scratch the itch entirely, but the being of Bond, it is so intriguing because... We wouldn't want a woman to be like Bond. He is, as accused by M long ago, a chauvinistic dinosaur. And so it's very, very intriguing and cool to see Scarlett Johansson and really her amazing younger sister in the film. And they are empowered women, but I hated the many, many women who are the minions in this, all those widows that are fanned out around the globe and happen to be incredibly amazing looking. And that that's hard. Interestingly, you bring that up. It did remind me of the fembots from Austin Powers, which we discussed last week. But we talked about in this episode, kind of the idea of free will and the idea of who is the owner of a woman's body, I guess, is, is the best way to describe it. And Obviously, in this movie, there are very explicit things where these people are being controlled with a serum. You know, they're brainwashed, essentially. They don't have agency over their own bodies. And so the movie is, besides all of the marvel of it all, about two women rescuing a group of you know women. It really is. I totally agree with you. I thought, gosh, all these women, they're being coerced against their war. They're under the control of one elderly white guy, you know, and he's just calling all the shots and pulling all the strings. But I I loved, I loved the relationship between the two sisters. And then I just love that they were going to do this mission because it sounded like it was going to be fun. Right. And I had a smile on my face for a lot of that. It felt like real women talking to each other and very capable people who are you know, maybe what they do is kill people, but they're really good at it. And, you know, they're proud of their skills. And now they're going to use these skills for something for something good and something meaningful. And that is a really cool turning of the tables. I'm glad you mentioned the idea of fun, because I think in most spy fiction, the job of the spy, the espionage world is seen as fun. You know, it's seen as kind of like a a swinging cool thing to do, especially in the 1960s when it was the James Bond archetype ruled every single spy film that 
ever existed after that. It was only after the the Bourne movies came along that I think Hollywood really started to see the interest in a more gritty kind of unpleasant gray picture of the spy film. So how how close is the idea of the fun, boozy, exciting spy world to the actual real spy world? Our former director at the Spy Museum, Peter Ernest comes to mind, CIA veteran of the clandestine service who never understood why I loved the following story so much, but he was at a cocktail party and he knew he had to plant a listening device, a recording device in the office of the man who was hosting the party. His wife at the time was on lookout. Peter's wearing a tux. He slips out of the party unobtrusively, goes downstairs, spreads his pocket handkerchief across the top of his suit, lies on the floor, gets under the desk, drills in this listening device to the bottom of the desk where it won't be noticed, gathers up the handkerchief where the shavings from the drilling have fallen. So they're not on him. They're not evidence in the office. Puts that in his pocket and returns to the party for, I'm sure, another martini shaken, not stirred. So This sounds fun to me. I would do that. If you want to talk about disguise for a minute, I would love to talk about how much fun our, our friend John Mendez had creating disguise systems that for their time and place, mimic what we see in Black Widow. She wore one of her disguise systems into the White House and fooled President George H.W. Bush. He didn't know she was in disguise. A president of the United States in the Oval Office say, well, show me some photos of this new disguise system. And John are getting to say, I'm, I'm wearing it. What are they made of? What are these masks made of? The details of it are probably still classified. I have seen this one, which is not aging well. I don't think it would be impressive to us now, but we're talking at that time, you know, the ancient times of George H.W. Bush, and you're not paying, remember, you don't pay a lot of attention to other people in meetings. You're in the Oval Office, your eyes are on the president. All she has to do is blend in. That's the thing about these spies that stick out, that make them very questionable spies. I mean, a spy is usually trying to blend in. Yeah. So you're saying I could maybe be a spy under the right circumstances as long as I was in a room with an interesting enough person. But how could anyone be more interesting than you, Dave? Ask yourself This that. is an excellent point. Um, I got to ask you, because this is, again, a movie about gender and gender politics in the world in general, but specifically, you know, in these kind of espionage situations, what is it really like for a woman in the spy world? Because we know how difficult it can be for women to get any kind of equality or any kind of respect in the corporate world, in the business world. What's it like in the spy world? It's not the James Bond fantasy, but it's probably not Black Widow either. Mostly people don't talk to us until they have sort of retired from the field. They're in their the consulting sector. They've moved on to their next career. But we hear really actually quite encouraging stuff from folks coming out of the CIA, the NSA, kind of moving ahead, moving forward, being respected. But it's always going to be tough because I have a lot of women in the field who find it difficult that folks love to make jokes about Mata Hari and seductive spies. I'm like, oh, so I know how you get information out of people. And that is a difficult 
difficult thing when you work hard at your job and you're a professional and then people think it just boils down to, oh, you just seduce people for intelligence purposes. How much of that misogyny is coming from the depiction of spies in movies and literature? The Melissa McCarthy movie, Spy, is such a favorite because for us, here's this woman that is, you know, they're giving her the like crazy cat lady and the hemorrhoid ointment and all the like dowdy stuff. And that's a great way to blend in. As one old spy friend said to me, you know, you just grab a baby carriage and you suddenly become invisible. (laughs) I'm a father. I know exactly what you mean. Nobody wants to talk to me. They're like, oh boy, this guy settled down. Or just grab a clipboard and you can get in anywhere. You know, if I've, I've got a clipboard and my hair pulled back, people are like, oh, she's, you know, catering staff. It is interesting how all of us, and this is like through the centuries, you know, women, people of color, sort of invisible people, as we like to say, have been able to turn those tables, which is extremely satisfying. It's as though, you know, no one thinks that we can can hear or make sense of the big ideas. And wow, how about that? Maybe we're listening and, and telling your tales. The patronizing way people treat us is actually a good thing. <laughs> yeah, that's a weird takeaway. That's a galaxy brain moment for sure. Well, let's talk more about the accoutrement of the spy because I know you you uh, at the museum have in your collection a lipstick pistol, a gun hidden in a stick of lipstick. And I'm fascinated by that because that seems like it's out of a movie, but it's real. It's a real thing that actually existed. It is a real thing that exists. And we do have things that just are so delicious like that. And this is a is a KGB one shot. It is a single shot lipstick pistol. And when you see it, I mean, it looks like a lipstick and and it's quite delightful because it's red on top. But like if I pulled it out, you would say, lady, I think you got a gun there. (laughs) (laughs) Right. It's probably not as sophisticated as the stuff Q is using in the Bond films. Because it's real. Right. One thing that is also in your collection. Uh, You're going to do it, aren't you? Oh, I'm just going to I'm just going to ask you a question. Okay. I read that you guys have a fake scrotum in your collection. So I just want you to just talk about it as long as you want. I'm going to tell you that that is true. The hairy. It's got hairs on it. It's got hair. And it's, it looks to me, I'm going to profile it for you, if you don't mind. I <laughs> I believe this is a middle-aged white man. Okay, yeah, yeah, uh-huh. It is his goods, and it is just the lower part of the scrotum, the top, has a hole. And this would be where you could put whatever you're smuggling, and then you would slip your own scrotum, yeah. scrotum into the false scrotum. and the idea being that as you're going through security, they're probably not looking that hard at your scrotum. I don't know what happens to you, Dave, when you travel. People are constantly staring down there. This wouldn't work for me. Jeez. I know, I know. But um, this was a prototype done by the fabulous Tony Mendez of Argo fame. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, Argo, another another great spy genre movie, but based on a real story. Based on a real story. And you might recognize the commonality of the John and Mendez I mentioned earlier. They were husband-wife team. Both of them were separately chief of disguise at the CIA. But Tony, I believe, he had great sense of humor. And he developed this. And I think, as I understand it, the higher up 
was just so disgusted when they were like, we want to show you this new thing that it really didn't go anywhere. But but Tony, you know, had this prototype and, and kept a hold of it. So it is with great pleasure and embarrassment, I welcome you to come in and look at our special. Scrotum. I got to ask you one more super important question. The question of the day, will there ever be a female James Bond? And if so, should there even be a female James Bond? Wow. I mean, there may very well be a Jane Bond, but she's not going to be like Bond. I mean, some things are never going to change, like which we really enjoyed in Black Widow. Interesting settings, you know, cool gear, people at the top of their game. The international vibes and the, the various cool locations and the, the gadgets and the fight scenes and all that stuff will still be there. It'll just be a very different character. And the humor. I love the humor in Black Widow. I love when the Bond movies are fun. I do. I, was, I loved Roger Moore as a Bond because he was funny. So I think we definitely will see a Jane Bond, if that will be her name or not. And we will hear complaints about it. But, you know, we'll, we might also find out we like it. Exactly. I, absolutely. Well, I liked speaking to you today. This was a wonderful conversation. Tell us if there are any big international spy museum programs coming up that people should know about. Oh, my goodness. Thank you for the chance to tell us. We do all kinds of interesting free programs and you can hop on our website and check them out and register for free. And we have this really cool guy. His name is Mark Polymeropoulos. He was in charge of clandestine affairs from Dublin to Moscow, that swath of the world. That's fascinating. I recommend everybody go check that out and go check out the International Spy Museum scrotum that's on display right now. It's got a little hole in it. It's got hairs on it. Thank you, Dave. We need more people to see our scrotum. <laughs> Thank you, Amanda. It was just a pleasure, an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. All right. Each week, we wrap up the show with a Galaxy Brain take from one of our listeners. Here's one now. Hey, so I just watched Black Widow, and it was fun. It was a fun time at the movies, a diversion, you know? except for Taskmaster. Now, don't get me wrong, within the context of, like, the movie, fine. But I'm led to this thing where I'm like, okay, at what point do I have to stop being precious with, like, the characters? But at what point do I have to kind of let go of, like, all the potential that is, like, hidden within this, like, character and what I kind of feel like they end up squandering when they adapt him? Like, at what point do I have to kind of just let that go? Anyway, fine movie. Should have been released a couple years ago. Thanks. Bye. <laughs> I'm sorry that they couldn't release it because of a global pandemic, young man. Anyway, I feel your pain. I hear the anguish in your voice. I understand how you must feel. I get this way about stuff like Star Trek and James Bond, all the things that I love. But what you have to understand is that they wanted to use this character because of the particular issue that Natasha Romanoff is going through. She has her fake family, and then she has her Avengers family that she's been separated from, and now she's alone. And so the fact that she has to fight this character that knows how all of her friends fight has a thematic quality to it. It's part of the undercurrent of her issue. You would say that Black Widow is 
fighting with her family. Oh my God. The movie that Florence Pugh was in. Yeah, kind of. I guess you're right about that. So I, I think you have to, one, accept that they chose this character for a good movie reason, a good story reason. And two, I think you need to remember that the MCU is a large and vast universe that contains multitudes. And we will see Taskmaster again. If you think we won't, well, folks, the Mandarin is back in Shang-Chi that's coming out <laughs> later this year. So I think you're going to be fine. You're going to get your Mandarin that you wanted. You're going to get your Taskmaster. Everything will be okay. If you want to call in like this gentleman did and give us your takes, we'd love to hear you talk about next week's topic, Space Jam. Our number is 213-570-8069 and is also listed in our show notes. Give us a call and leave us a voicemail with your take. And don't forget to leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. It lets us know you care. The best review will get assigned Jonah Heston MST3K jumpsuit. But no, no, please don't do that. Do what? Offer things, things like that, that you know I can't do. By the time the reviews are live on Apple Podcasts, it'll be too late. You know, they can change the review to a one star. They're allowed to do that. Hey, so the thing about the jumpsuit, I am suffering from severe heat stroke. California, right? <laughs> okay, let's just do the outro. <laughs> That's a wrap on this week's Galaxy Brains. Next week, we are welcoming you to the Space Jam. Again, it's Space Jam 2 with special guest Adam Pally. Finally, a guest who dresses as well as I do. Okay, Mr. Gucci Loafers, why don't you read the credits? Galaxy Brains is produced by Kylie Holloway and me, Dave Schilling. The show is engineered by Dan Turek with music from Gautam Shrikashin. Our executive producer is Matt Patches and our developing producer is Zach Mack. Polygon's editor-in-chief is Chris Plant, and Russ Freshtick is the director of special projects. Special thanks to Andrew Melnizek, who helped create the show. Until next time, I'm Juna. <laughs> and I'm Dave. Take us home, Don McClain. Hey.